Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 to 12. Now Moses was tending the flock at Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and they came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hiphites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. When David read that passage to us from Exodus 3, I wonder whether it all sounded very strange and foreign to you. But to Moses, this day began like any other. For 40 years, this man has been shepherding his flock. That was his day job. His father-in-law Jethro was a local priest. We've no reason to believe he was a priest of the one true living God. But he was a priest in the area of Midian. And that work required the majority of his time. So in time, Moses, his son-in-law, became the one entrusted with the most valuable thing this family had. Now, it might, to most of us who aren't farmers, be quite unusual to think that a shepherd is so valuable of sheep and flocks. We think big investment fund. We think healthy pension pots. But in the ancient Near East, this flock was both the current account and the savings account for this family. And it's Moses' job to care for this flock which in Midian wasn't an easy task because Midian isn't great farming country. Don't think wet and lush Wales where there's grass everywhere you look because it rains all the time. This is sparse, wilderness lands. This is the kind of place where you have to go a long way to find any kind of vegetation, which means for somebody like Moses and all of his other shepherding friends, their day job constantly had them on the move searching for some fresh piece of pasture. So on this day, verse 1, that search took him to the far side of the wilderness, probably reading this as a Midian, so over to the west side, as you look at it, that way, of uh, somewhere in Midian, to a mountain called Horeb. And we don't know exactly where Horeb is. We just don't. We need to be honest about the things that we do know. 
and there are some things that we don't. And we don't know exactly where Horeb is, but we do know it's a second name for a mountain that even if you're not regularly in church, you may well have heard of before. Its other name is Sinai. And we're not entirely sure how those names relate to one another. If you've been walking in Snowdon, you will know that there's one mountain that is called Snowdon, but there's an area called Snowdonia. Well, it might be that Horeb is the mountain range, and Sinai is the one point when we will get to God revealing the Ten Commandments and everything else that is to come. But all of that is yet to happen. And we need to remember that because Moses wrote this book that we are studying at the end of his life as he's looking back on all the things that have happened. So he knows at the end of his life that this would become the mountain of God. But in Exodus 3, when these events are happening in real time for the first time, he's not gone to worship God. He's just a shepherd looking for fresh pasture. And as he looked across the land, he saw a burning bush. Which again, couldn't have been more normal for a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness. Because he would have seen bushfires all the time. We experienced a little glimmer of that this summer, didn't we? Perhaps you can remember the, the London Fire Brigade declaring a major incident on, I think it was the 19th of July this summer, because there were just so many fires going on in the capital city. And it wasn't just in London. We saw fires on our TV screens. You may have even driven past some up and down our country. I had a look on the infallible source of Wikipedia to see how many major fires are listed. And I totted up all the acreage. As best I can tell, there was at least 3,300 acres of land in our country that was burnt through the wildfires of this summer. It wasn't worse in our country. Across Europe, according to the European Forest Fire Information System, 1.6 million acres of land burnt across Europe during the course of this year. Moses was used to that. You think about the heat in the wilderness in the Middle East. It would just take the smallest glimmer from a rock to catch what in that area of the world is a, a very common bush, the acacia bush, which can get so dry. And all of a sudden, you've just got tinder that suddenly caught a blaze. And part of Moses' job as a shepherd, who's taking his sheep all the way around to try and get them fresh pasture, was to make sure that none of his sheep got burnt by a bushfire. I mention all of that because this was just an ordinary day for Moses. And today may have begun as just an ordinary day for you. You might not normally be in church, I grant you. Perhaps this is an unusual place for you to be on a Sunday. Somebody may well have invited you for this service. You may have planned to come anyway because you wanted to be somewhere to be able to pause and remember together with us of the sacrifices that so many have given. But apart from that, today may feel like another ordinary day for you. Exodus 3 is going to teach us a lot of things, both today and next Sunday, Lord willing. But the first thing we need to see is that God breaks into our ordinary lives. That's the God that we are going to be thinking about today. He is the God who breaks into our ordinary lives. He did that for Moses in a truly remarkable way that we can't expect to be repeated today. 
But as you look through the whole of the Bible, and indeed as you look through the whole of history, God is always breaking into our ordinary lives. You trace some of the people throughout the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. God breaks into the lives of the fatherless. God breaks into the lives of poorer laborers like fishermen, of richer laborers like tax collectors, of religious people and irreligious people, of men and women, of older people and children, as normal as you thought your day would be today. God may well be breaking into your life today. Let's see how he did that with Moses. Then we can think how he might be doing it in your life and my life today. The second thing we need to see is that God reveals himself to us. Now for Moses, that happened in a specific place in a supernatural way. If we follow Moses' gaze, it turns out this is no ordinary bushfire. Verse 2, though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. I love campfires. I've never yet managed to make this happen. How many of you learnt the fire triangle when you were taught how to build a fire? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, what three things do we need for a fire? Hit me. Oxygen, fuel, and heat. Oxygen, fuel, and heat. So here we are. We're on Mount Horeb, okay? Surrounded by plenty of oxygen. That's good. Plus, we've got plenty of heat because we're in a hot place, and we've, we've also got a fire going, because there's a fuel, because we've got the bush. So we're set. Hang on a minute. No. No, it's not the bush that's providing the fuel. The, these flames aren't being fueled by the fire. They are self-fueling. This is technology that Elon Musk can't even dream about. This is utterly, utterly inexplicable. Moses couldn't explain it. We can't explain it in the 21st century supermodern technological world that we live in until you see who's at work in the bush. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames of the fire. But if you look at verse 4, it tells us that the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look and that God called to him from within the bush. I don't know whether you've ever thought about angels, but if you have, you have probably thought of them as created heavenly beings. That's what we tend to think of, isn't it? Popularly, they would tend to have wings and a glow and all that kind of stuff. But theologically, they're created, but they're heavenly beings. Well, the way this event ties these three names together, this angel of the Lord, angel basically meaning messenger, is not only coming to bring a message from God, but... He's also God himself. He's the one who calls out to Moses. And that's really hard for us to get our heads around. Is it an angel or is it God? Both. Now, as a church family, we've spent the last few years working our way through the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible. If you missed any of that, you'd like to listen to it. It's all available on the website. We found two occasions of this already in our, we're in the second book of the Bible. So if you go home this afternoon, you can look at Genesis chapter 21. Hagar and Ishmael are banished away from their family, and they're sent into the desert of Beersheba. And we read as a church, God heard the boy crying, God, and the angel of God spoke to her. Okay, chapter 22. 
God's commanding Abraham to show his willingness to trust God with everything, even by the command to sacrifice Isaac, his son. It's the angel of the Lord who called out to Abraham to stop him from sacrificing Isaac. And then the second time the angel of the Lord starts speaking, we read that it's the Lord who's speaking. So we need to completely recategorize this angel. There are plenty of angels. But this angel of the Lord is distinct from but synonymous with and equal to God himself. I think it's right to say that this is one of those pre-incarnate, those appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ before he was born. See, what Moses is glimpsing here is something of the nature and the personhood of God. And that's what explains the fire. There are Some people over the centuries who have understood this burning bush to be symbolic of the situation that Israel's in. So they would look at the bush and say, well, the bush is symbolic of Israel, and the flames represent their affliction and the persecution in Egypt, and the fire, uh, sorry, the angel is a reminder that God is present with his people. And all of that's true, but I don't think it's the heart of the passage. The center of this passage is not the suffering of God's people, though God, as we're going to see, knows it and is going to respond because of it. This passage is a revelation of the holiness of God. That's what takes center stage in verses 5 and 6. The God who's revealing himself to Moses is so holy that Moses can't just casually wander into his presence. God tells him, verse 5, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, on any other day, any other Sunday, I think the idea of any of us thinking that a piece of land would be special in some way would be quite foreign, maybe unusual. But not this Sunday. This Sunday, there are men and women gathering around memorials and cenotaphs up and down our country who will be careful about the way they come close to those monuments. There is something about the shared sense of remembrance. That means even if you're not a religious person whatsoever and wouldn't ever normally be anywhere near a church, you will be careful about the way you approach those monuments. You see, special places, as we might read of them sometimes in the Bible, are not as unusual as we might think, even in our post-religious Western world. What is completely different, though, about this place is what makes it special. It's not just the remembrance of something enormous and sacrificial. It is the presence of the holy God of heaven himself. And God commands Moses not to come anywhere near his presence until he's taken his sandals off. What's with the sandals? Well, you can give a number of explanations. Some people will say, well, it's because God didn't want Moses to come anywhere near him with the dirt that he was carrying on the soles of his shoes. And and that's possibly true, but a little bit of an odd way of thinking about things, given that God is revealing himself through an ordinary bush in the middle of the wilderness. 
If any of you have been to the Middle East, you will know that even to this day, it is a sign of respect, particularly if you're in the presence of someone who is greater than you, to take off your shoes. And clearly that's the case here because there's nobody greater than the God of heaven and earth. But we don't want to miss perhaps the simplest explanation. God is telling Moses how he can draw near to him. And Moses can only come in the way God says. Here's Moses beholding a bush ablaze with the self-fueling revelation of the eternal God who is entirely self-sufficient. Not only that, he's holy. So perfect and majestic in all that is uniquely his nature that Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is going to describe God as the Lord your God being a consuming fire. It's his presence that's what is making this ground holy. He's so pure and righteous. He is. We often talk about holiness being a description of being set apart. And I think that's right. But in the case of God, what's he set apart from? Well, he's set apart from everything that he's made. There is nothing like him. He is absolutely, unapproachably, and utterly holy. And as soon as Moses understands something of the significance of who is representing himself in this bush, he does what every single man or woman has ever done when confronted with God. He hides. He tries to turn his face away. Which is a ridiculous thing to try and do, because if God's God, then he sees everything. But it's what we do... Because however we might compare ourselves with our neighbors or our work colleagues or our family members, when on that comparative moral scale, we can always make ourselves look better than someone else. You come face to face with a God of unapproachable holiness and the only thing you are going to be thinking of is of your sin. Not the two or three good things you might have done in the past 24 hours. It's the only way any of us can approach such a holy God. We can only do what he commands us to do. And right here for Moses, that's to take off his sandals. I think there's a theologian called Alec Matea who captures this really helpfully. He says, the central point of Moses taking off his shoes is a simple lesson in obedience. We should bow humbly to whatever God may require of us and be thankful for the effectiveness of his provision as he admits us to his presence. Meaning, if God tells us that this is the way that we can come to him, then we should be so thankful for the fact that he's made sure that's enough. That matters today as much as it did in Moses' day. Because God hasn't changed. He's still the same righteous, holy God. And we, like Moses, are born unrighteous and unholy which means what we need, all of us, is a God who can rescue us and make it possible for us to draw near him without fear. And as we work through the rest of the book of Exodus as a church family, and if you're new, we would love for you to come with us every Sunday morning as we do that. We're going to be seeing how God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. But in the way that he does that, he's going to be previewing for all of us how he's then going to rescue all of us who also need rescuing. And both of those rescues, from Egypt 
and from ourselves require, thirdly, God to come down to rescue us. Now, if you were with us last week, we saw that God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. Look at verse 6. God reveals himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not past tense. God doesn't say, I was the God of your now dead ancestors. He says, I am, present tense, the God of your ancestors who continue to live even though they've died because of their relationship with me. What God is doing is he is pointing back to his covenant relationship and saying, I'm the God of your living ancestors. And then, verse 7, he assures Moses that he's heard the cries of his people. He's seen the misery of his people. Notice that. It's not just your people or the people. It's my people, says God. And he knows. He's concerned about our suffering. I am not an expert of many religions. But I don't know of a single other religion in the world where God is so concerned for his people. And I absolutely know for sure that there is not another religion in the world where God would come down to save his people. That's a unique message for the Christian faith. You see that in verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them. It's the only way the Israelites could possibly be saved. They were an enslaved workforce that even if they wanted to, they didn't have the power to break free from the Egyptians. Their only hope is that God himself would rescue them. How, how many of you read the Forgotten 500 book? Has anybody read that? Looking for some hands? No. Nobody has. Well, I'm quite excited to read it because I was digging around for some fresh stories and heard this story that I think was released a few years ago now, but for decades, it was a story that wouldn't be released because of political concerns and the fact that it was classified. So, what's the main story? Well, during a bombing campaign over Romanian oil fields, there more than 500 American soldiers who were shot down in Nazi-occupied Yugoslavia in the Second World War. Local farmers risk their lives by saving these American soldiers. But they couldn't rescue themselves from Nazi-occupied Yugoslavia. And what was born in 1944 was an operation called Operation Halyard. These 512 airmen cleared a runway for a C-47 cargo plane. If you don't know your airplanes, I don't. This is a C-47 cargo plane. It's not small. It's going to need quite a long runway. And here's what's really impressive. These 512 soldiers, perhaps with the farmers who'd rescued them, cleared the runway without any tools. They cleared it without any of the Germans knowing they were doing it. And they cleared it without putting at risk any of the farmers who'd given them safety. If you read this story, I've not read it, I don't know if it's a great story or not, but the history behind this story 
is a remarkable prelude to what is still yet to happen. Because even once they've done all of that, they're still stuck in Yugoslavia. If they're going to be rescued, it's going to be from people outside of their situation. Now, apparently, if you read the book, you hear an amazing story of these massive planes coming through enemy airfields, landing on that strip, and taking all 512 safely home. Those soldiers needed to be rescued from the outside, and that is exactly the same case for the Israelites. But no C-47 from the U.S. Air Force is going to help them. They need God himself to break into this enslaved prison camp that is their, quote, home in Egypt. And that's what God promises to do. See that I'm rescuing you from, and I'm rescuing two that God promises here. He's going to rescue them from the hand, or, or metaphorically, the power of the Egyptians. And he's going to rescue them to a land that he describes as so spacious, not like the cramped prison camp that you're in, and so abundant and fertile that you could describe it as being like it's flowing with milk and honey. This is the kind of place that they wouldn't even have dreamed about. And yet here's God's plan to rescue them. Verse 8 is a preview for the entire book of Exodus. But it's a better story than you can squeeze into a verse. And we would love for you to come and join us as we look at it and see how God is at work through Moses and Aaron to bring about the greatest rescue that I think you've ever seen in the history of humanity. Rescuing 512 airmen is incredible. Rescuing more than a million slaves from the superpower nation of its day is supernatural. That's what God has promised. That's what God did. He came down to rescue his people. Now remember what we've already seen of God. He's the eternally self-sufficient one. He's the unapproachably holy one. And yet he is so committed to his people that he would come down. For the Israelites, that was a physical rescue from slavery. We need a spiritual rescue. Because we're not enslaved in Egypt. But we are enslaved to our sin. And that's not a popular message in our Western world. But you will not hear a truer message than what is recorded for you in the Bible. In all God's holiness and majesty, he has brought you here today to see him in his word. Not in a burning bush, but in the pages of Scripture so that you would see his son, Jesus, for who he is. He's not only the angel of the Lord who appeared thousands of years ago to a random shepherd in the middle of Midian. He's the son of God who would willingly surrender his eternal glory to come down to rescue us. That's what we as Christians celebrate every single Christmas of a God who would come down to rescue us, not with C-47s or even the 10 plagues of Egypt, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. And why did he come? It was to fully reveal God to us 
so that you wouldn't be left wondering how a fire that's representative of the holiness and the majesty of God is describing who God really is. By the time we get all the way through the Old Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ, now we know who God is in his holiness and his majesty and power, in his love and his mercy and his compassion. Jesus lived that perfect life that none of us can live. Isn't it interesting as you're watching politics at the moment, there's not a single move that can be made or decision made or anything without people being exposed for being imperfect and then just receiving a volley of criticism. It's everywhere. You can't make an appointment without somebody being criticized. You can't make a decision without somebody being criticized. And it's like a zero-sum game. Now, we look at all of that and think that's ridiculous. Let's just have some normality. Everybody's flawed. But we really don't want to then think, well, that means I'm also flawed. And before our holy God, my flaws can only mean one thing. That I deserve the just judgment of God against my sin. Well, that is why Jesus came down to rescue us. He came to live the perfect life that I could never live, that none of us could ever live. He came to die upon the cross, not only to show the extent of his love for us. That's that's not all that's going on there. It's to actually take the punishment from God for our sin such that we can now draw near to God as we trust in what Jesus has done. So if you look at some of the references to what Jesus has done in the New Testament, you get Peter telling us that Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that's me and you if you're trusting in Jesus, to bring you to God. That's why he did it. Then you get the writer to the Hebrews saying that Jesus' shed blood has opened the way to the most holy place. Then you get Paul telling us that through Jesus we have access to the Father by the Spirit. Which should leave all of us saying, well then, what am I supposed to do? Moses had to take off his sandals. Those 512 airmen had to prepare the runway. What must I do to be saved? That is a brilliant question. And there were a massive crowd of people that asked Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, that question 2,000 years ago. This is what Peter said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. That is the Bible's way of saying Confess your sin and turn away from it. Believe, trust that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to be right before God. And do so knowing that God has promised he will forgive you and free you from your sin. And when we repent, everything changes. He gives us new life that begins now and lasts for all eternity. He gives us his Holy Spirit. Remember Exodus 2 verse 11? Sorry, Exodus 3. What is it that God promises to Moses? We're going to see next week that Moses comes out with a bucket load of excuses for why he can't do this job. The very first response that God gives to Moses is, I am with you. And the amazing promise for everyone who will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is God himself gives us his spirit so that he will always be with us to change us 
to comfort us and to bless us. Which is why Christians are baptized. It's a sign that the old has gone. That we are now living a new life through, in, and for Jesus Christ. And if you've never been to a baptism, we would love for you to come this evening. Don't come here, because it's not happening here. Come to our building on Heath Terrace at 6 o'clock and hear Anna's story of how God broke into her ordinary life and revealed himself to her and rescued her.